Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. On this week's edition, I'm joined by special guest Ben Wheatley, the director of Sightseers, High Rise, and a new adaptation of Rebecca, which recently opened in UK cinemas and is now available on Netflix. So we're very glad to, uh, to welcome back to the show, first time uh, virtually, although he's been with us uh, on stage at the BFI, the great Ben Wheatley. Ben, how are you? I'm very well. How are you? I'm fine. Where are you? Brighton. Oh, because which is your your hometown? I noticed behind you there's a very well organised bookshop. Behind me is chaos and kipple, but behind you, very well organised bookshelves. Yes, very. Yeah, it's um, not not none of my doing. It's Amy has done all this, but yeah. Oh it's right. Kind of, um, but okay. yeah, it's it's basically the kind of uh, the split in our household, which is intelligent books that, that I haven't read and comics which I have. <laughs> and. I've, I've asked this of everybody, and I'm, I'm, how has lockdown been for you? How have you managed it? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's been not much different from normal life, to be honest, because in between films we don't really go out, so it's just been just working on new stuff, so writing, which there isn't much social interaction while we write anyway, so, it, so that side of it's been okay. I mean, obviously full of anxiety as the world collapses um day by day and reading too much news which i could do without but apart apart from that it's been um it's been pretty straightforward though you know the existential threat of um the complete collapse of everything is uh (laughs) heavy on the on the mind as it does for everybody you know i I can't ride a motorbike so i don't know what i'm going to do when when we get into the mad max stage of things you know it's uh (laughs) i probably could manage a mohican though just about still as far as I understand it, so Amy doesn't do any social media, but you, but the last time I spoke to you, you were kind of almost compulsively, you were trying to, you said when you work, you come off it, but you do do a lot of social media. So have you been following, checking like every five minutes on Twitter to see how bad the world is? Well, I got off Twitter. Completely. That was one of the, that was one of the main things. Yeah, pretty much. Um, when did that happen, Ben? Um, that was, I think that was right at the beginning of... It all, it was all too mad. It was too horrible. And everyone was just too screechy. And I just, and it wasn't doing me any good. So, but I think we've, we've kind of become, um, we've slowly been slipping into the world of reading The Guardian a lot, which is a a horrible place. I've even, I even paid my subscription (laughs) the other day. (laughs) Because we had so much of it for free, you know. 
Yeah, well, uh, you know, obviously, as somebody who writes for The Observer, Ben, I feel uh, duty-bound to say to you, well done. Support support all newspapers at this difficult time. Because Hey, listen, you can complain about them as much as you like, but you'd miss them if they're gone. Absolutely, yes. And, it, you know, it, it is that... It's that total news minute by minute thing is is all consuming, you know, and it feels it's that trick of social media, isn't it, as well, to make you feel like you've got a job, which is reading stuff, <laughs> which is not not real. <laughs> you 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 said the best thing anyone, in my opinion, has ever said about social media and, and creativity. You said that when when you're on social media, if you've made a film, you said it's like hearing the whole audience talking all the time. And I cannot get that image out of my head of if you've made something and it goes out into the world and you're on social media, it is like listening to the audience talking all the time. That must be really hard. Um, yeah, I mean, I think at the beginning, the first few films, it was more interesting, you know, and but as you see the patterns of it, and you can identify the tribes and the various groups of people that talk. And also you understand your own reaction to it, which is kind of p- pathetic and kind of egotistical. You kind of back up. You, I, had the, I had the strength <laughs> to back away from it because you know? it doesn't help. It doesn't help you at all to, to know it all, to know that lots of people really, really hate stuff and lots of people really, really love stuff. The loving stuff is good, but the hating stuff is like... They hate everything, you know. The, way, the trick is, is to when, when IMDb used to have... Um, let us, or, you know, have comments. You just look at your favourite films and see what people say about them. And I, I was, uh, there was quite a lot of. I was reading all stuff about Videodrome and going, "This is these people. <laughs> Who are these people?" <laughs> yeah, of course. Of course, the strangest thing about Videodrome now is watching Videodrome in the knowledge of what James Woods then became. And the idea of him sitting in, you know, as Greg Proop says, in the corner of that bistro, rage-tweeting pro-Trump stuff. And all you want to do is you want to go, James, you're in Videodrome. How can you possibly think any of these things? The last time I saw you, you had your head inside a television screen that was the shape of Debbie Harry's mouth. How did this happen? Well, I think I think he's more the he's more the character from Cop and and um, more the character from <laughs> Casino, isn't he? You know, if you're gonna, but you can't get you can't mistake actors for their characters. But no, I mean, I, I think I thought you were going to say Videodrome is just now become absolutely true. You know, I think that's more the that's more the worry of Videodrome. It's not it, it's it's as ever with predictive fiction. It just becomes, it, it becomes true eventually if you if you if you live a lot live a long enough life. You know. Well, certainly of, of, you know, of all the Cronenbergs, Videodrome contains, I think, one of the best lines he ever wrote. And I think this relates to stuff that, that you do as well, which is, it has a philosophy. That's what makes it dangerous. And actually, that's what's at the centre of Videodrome, is that ideas are dangerous. Which leads us rather neatly into the fact that you, you have a new film, which is Rebecca, which I, I, I just watched uh, recently, enjoyed very much. And I have to say, Ben, um, I was looking forward to it, but I was also trepidatious because, as every one knows if you ever do um a film which has been you know an adaptation which has been made before particularly something that's been made before and considered a classic like rebecca like wages of fear for which i have the the poster here or like uh you know breathless or, or solaris you are setting yourself up for a fall so the first thing to say is well done <laughs> you you know you, you pulled it off so tell us how this all came about um well it, it started with 
I was doing some development at Working Title, who were the um, producers, and they uh, for something else. And then they they kind of said, "Oh, we've got this script that we've been developing for a long time, which is which is Rebecca." And and I had the same thoughts as you did. I was like, "This is, um, you know, this is quite dangerous." And what will happen if I do it? And then I thought, I, that's exactly why I should do it, you know, for just on a very basic level. Before I'd read the script, I thought, well, this is this is, you know, and it's it's a kind of way I've I've chosen a lot of the projects. This this shouldn't be done, so probably should do it. And as soon as you start worrying about stuff, you should think, well, that's probably where I should be, and probably why I'll end up having to do a musical eventually, even though I hate them with with all my heart. But um, I think that the. Um, uh, but then I read it, I read the script, and I was really surprised that I'd, I'd actually, I'd made a lot of assumptions about what happened in it, and I'd forgotten. And I thought that was really weird, because I'd seen the film, and I'd read the book, and I'd still got, I'd still got it wrong. And I, and I wondered why that was, and that was, that was the beginning of my thinking that maybe that, that there's something has happened with it, that it, it's so deep in our culture that it's actually now become, that people... Um, kind of mis- misremember it, or, or not everybody, obviously, but but they, but it, it, the shadow of it's been cast so long and far that it's actually mutated and changed culture around it. And and I thought if if someone who's watched quite a lot of movies like I have would would fall for it, then maybe it's time for the modern audience to see it again as well. Announcing the return of the most glamorous motion picture ever made, David O. Selznick and Alfred Hitchcock bring you the Grand Slam Prize winner that made motion picture history. Winner of the Academy Award, voted by America's critics as the best picture of the year. And now, as a result of a national poll, winning new honors as audiences throughout the country vote to see it again. The Selznick Studios successor to Gone with the Wind, Rebecca, brought to the screen with all the warmth and emotion that made millions of readers acclaim Daphne du Maurier's bestseller as the most exciting love story of our time. So, significantly, the script is by... Jane Goldman. So, obviously, Jane Goldman has, a, you know, a very fine record and a very distinctive voice. So what did you find in the script that was different to what you had remembered? Um, well... Uh- nothing to do with Jane but I'd completely for, I thought it was some kind of Victorian melodrama and I don't know why that was I mean this is a proper misremembering this isn't just details this is like a massively wrong yeah, no, that's, I, that's a different film Ben that's a yeah, whole other film no it's completely different but when you look at the Hitchcock version you do it is kind of like a Victorian melodrama it's really odd you know and that's I think that's what had done it and if you look at movies around the period that he made they're much more modern and bouncy and that's much more stayed anyway so it, it that was it. And then it was how she'd handled the, um, well, the straight adaptation of the book, which is not what you see in the original adaptation. You know, the actual, the, the, the actual nub of the centre of the book is missing from the, from the Hitchcock version. Um, and she, and that was in. And then the other thing it, that, that I found was really interesting is the kind of the, the updating of it in terms of how to handle the, um, the second Mrs. De Winter, the unnamed character in the, in the script, which makes, every interview completely hellish because you can't say the name of the character, you know, which is ir- really irritating beyond belief. But it's kind of that, that, um, uh, and, and how the end of the film, she'd kind of solved a lot of the kind of dramatic issues that were, that had happened with the, with, um, the original adaptations, I thought, you know, and how the book kind of tails out as well, you know, it, it, and which works in the book fine, but it doesn't really work for a movie. And I thought that was really interesting what she'd done with that. Buffett. The terrace is for guests only. Monsieur, 
The young lady will be joining me. What did you do? I'm a lady's companion. Maxim de Winter. His wife died last year and is in dire need of company. I'm Monsieur de Winter. What are you doing? Oh, you'll see. This week, I'd like to never forget it. Come to Mandalay. I'm asking you to marry me, you little fool. Mrs. De Winter, may I present Mrs. Danvers? Welcome to Mandalay. So just for anyone who doesn't know, I mean, essentially the story in the book, it's a you know first person narration. As you say, you never discover the character's name. You hear it, you see it from the first person and they are on the back foot. They are somebody who is who becomes the second Mrs. De Winter and finds themselves living in a space in which they are surrounded by the ghosts of the previous Mrs. De Winter. And the film, it, both the book and the, the Hitchcock film are sort of inflected with gothic horror. But there is an issue about how uh, active and how much an agent the central character is, because the whole thing, in the, particularly in, in the Hitchcock film, is they have no agency whatsoever. In your film, our central character actually does seem to be more, uh, if not in control of their destiny, then at least powering their destiny. How, how do you see that central character? How do you how do you imagine them? Well, that was the main thing. Is like that that I wondered about the book when I read it. I wondered how much of it was true, you know, because it was all from her perspective. And like you can make an absolutely word for word adaptation, which has been done. The BBC, the the eighties BBC version is very, you know, it's like they spend the first episodes an hour and they spend that all in France. You know, I think the whole thing's about six hours long. It just it goes over every aspect of it. But I'm not sure that it, like a kind of if you absolutely adapt that straight, it is is actually what the book is saying, you know, in many ways. And I felt that that I wasn't um, I wasn't entirely I didn't entirely believe what she was saying about how how kind of helpless that she was that she was. It, she kind of helped her case quite a lot that she was so helpless within it. And from that from that it started to jump off. That was the jumping off point really. We started going well if she, what she's saying is not true. Is what Maxim de Winter saying true? Probably not. You know, even even when he does his great kind of um, confession, I'm not sure that that's even right. Any of that, he's the only witness to any of that stuff. You know, um, and then what? How does how does that work within it? And then that kind of gave us license to kind of say, well, you know, maybe. And, and how would the modern audience take this? You know, if if you do it to the letter of the book, if the character, ha- you, you know, what is the conversation that the audience are having, which is going to be mainly just leave him, go, run away. This is this is wrong. And it's kind of how do you balance that up against the social issues of the day versus the kind of modern audience's internal conversation? You know, and so we had to tre- tread that line of of um, she would have some strength, but not too much to break to break the original book, but also not not be so kind of um without agency so that the modern audience kind of goes i've had enough of her you know and i think that was that was the massive <laughs> challenge for for lily james you know to pull to do that and that was a lot of the conversations that we had you know about how how strong she would be or how weak she would be at any given moment um yeah so tell us about the other so lily james and army hammer of course um so tell us about casting those two roles and then we'll move on to to the third, the third part of this tripod. So tell us about casting those two. Yeah, I mean, I like I say with it, with Lily, it was it was out, born out of quite a lot of conversation and kind of uh, personal meeting. I, obviously, I know Army because I'd worked with him on on Free Fire, and and a lot of the a lot of the casting a lot of casting for me 
the best bits of casting where you see get insight into into people is not through their roles. You know, the original roles at this level, it, it, everyone's really good at acting. That's not a given. You're not looking at these roles for to, to find out whether they've you know they could, they're good enough to do anything. You know, but it's much more about conversations and about oftentimes it's looking at um, interviews as well and just kind of looking in trying to figure out what kind of a person they are and and how. And, and how that would help you with the, with the role, and then yeah, and sat sat down with Lily and talked to her a lot, and it was just kind of just gauging that thing of her being, you know, that a lot of it, a lot of it that's that's really on a, on a basic level really brilliant for her is that she's so likable in general. So she get that is the kind of power, the fuel that powers that character through all that you know the kind of the the lack of agency that is that you would root for her if she was someone that you didn't didn't like you would kind of go well it, you'd run out of steam with her quite quickly and then that kind of thing of being able to play on that on the edge of kind of paranoia and and fear but also being able to bring it back but also to sell the love you know between the two which was the main which is another big kind of conversation that we'd have that and and where the you know the the casting of army hammer comes in is that you've got to buy that romance and that's the thing that that gets you across the line into the rest of the movie because if you don't buy it at the beginning you just go ah, you know whatever these people you know i'm not i'm not interested in them i'm not invested in them but then that's the thing that actually flips the whole movie later on when you go oh i really want them to win <laughs> <laughs> and then you go, oh, God, they have one. That's quite bad, you know, without spoiling anything. You know, you kind of, it's one of those films that kind of makes you feel a little bit guilty by the end of it, that you should have maybe, you know, the, the, what was what would have been the right outcome outcome of the film is what um, Danvers is saying all along. And she's like, the, she's kind of like secretly the hero of the film. So let's talk about Mrs. Danvers. So basically, again, for people who don't know, and I just imagine that everybody knows the story, but in case they don't. So the second Mrs. De Winter then returns to Manderley and finds herself confronted with Mrs. Danvers, who is a figure who has now inspired so much cinema. I remember talking to Nick Park about the Penguin in uh, in Wallace and Gromit, and he said the Penguin m- m- were absolutely inspired by, by Mrs. Danvers. So how did you go about casting that role? And incidentally, I think it's a great piece of casting, so tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, it, we wanted... Obviously, the Danvers role is kind of iconic, but it's also become slightly a cliche as well. You know, it, it, that, that that kind of... That evil kind of scheming matriarch character is like it's it's through cinema it's like in every every thriller it's everywhere you know you can't get away from it and it and that again I was when I was reading the book I was thinking well she's kind of she's her role isn't really that she doesn't really do that much stuff that's that terrifying but what she does do is kind of talk she she talks to the audience a lot and tells them what the moral compass of things are to a degree and I, I kind of supported that, and I thought, you know, there's another version of this film which is like an Agatha Christie thing, where she's the detective and she works out what's happened, and then she gets them all in the drawing room and tells them all, and then people are taken off in handcuffs, you know, and that doesn't happen, you know, and 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 you kind of wonder why, and um and so we needed someone that would be able to be scary on the, you know, and and would be be certain and be kind of um, intimidating, but also would have heart. And that's where Kristen Scott Thomas comes in because I mean you know she's her kind of credentials are kind of un, unarguable. But and and as soon as her name came on the list, that was it. The the rest of the names kind of disappeared, you know. Um, and then it was just a case of us begging her to do it. <laughs> and did you have conversations with people about putting other adaptations out of their mind and approaching it afresh because i do think that it's it's important that the film is its own beast 
Yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I, you know, I watched all the other versions, but only as because I had to, because it was um, due diligence. It wasn't, and I, I never really approached stuff in terms of like trying to make something that is an echo of something else, because you, it's, it's a it's a mugs game, you know, and it doesn't help. Um, you know, we did, we, it was all. It was very kind of lightly talked about, but it was certainly there was no edicts of going, don't watch this or don't do that, you know, because you can't do that to people. And everybody, you know, most people have watched, seen the original Rebecca anyway, and and and, and probably the Charles Dance version, and and you know, and have their own ideas about it. But I certainly, um, you know, I mean, what's interesting about the the Hitchcock version as well is that they're all so young in it. You know, when you think about the ages of them, like Army Hammer's the same age. You know, and then so and the uh, the winter um, and uh, um, Danvers is, is the actress that plays Danvers is like thirty five in it, and it's so bizarre. But in your head, it's like some other thing, and that's what I mean. It's like kind of mutated into this this um, this kind of cultural creature, which is not not necessarily what what it is. And what about the um, the actual filming location? So you shot in Devon rather than Cornwall, is that right? Um, in our hearts, it was Cornwall, obviously, but um, it was Devon. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of <laughs> what it. It's it instantly bent. That's not an accusation. I'm not saying like <laughs> none of these real. Mark. You went the wrong. Right. Right. No, we didn't go back in. Understand. We didn't go back in time. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So just but tell us about film because actually I thought it looked great. I thought it had a real, you know, it had a real set. But it's yeah. So tell us about well, that. What it, what, it, what it was was that. It, that the Mandalay itself is not a real place, obviously, and it's a kind of a place of imagination of of De Maurier's imagination, and it and it's kind of half Menabili, but the Menabili house is tiny, you know, it's nothing like what Mandalay would look like, but the location is. But then the um then the house that she went to as a child, which is um completely different than somewhere else, you know. So we went we and what I figured was that the Mandalay itself was partially to do with. Cornwall, but also partially to do with her memories as a child. So everything was much bigger and grander and more, much more. And 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 you could never find that house. It's imp- it doesn't exist, you know. So what we um, and we went to the original, the house that she went visited as a child, which is a perfectly beautiful house, but it's still not the not not exactly what how it's described in the book. So we um, so Sarah Greenwood, the designer, kind of came up with this idea of like of, of saying, well, let's just take the best bits of as many houses as we can get and, and kind of build it out of that. And like the, the actual the way that big great English houses work is that they grow from a lot of them, unless they were new money, would grow out of like Tudor houses and then just each generation would put another wing on it. And then you you have these things where you walk around inside them and suddenly there's really these really old beams of wood and then it will go into something else, something else. And there's no planning permission, so they did what they wanted and knocked stuff down and you know. So it that that's kind of what we were that's kind of what we went for. It was kind of more like a dream a dreamscape of a house rather than a, than a, the the one that might make absolute sense. But it was also like this idea of it being like um, the history of Britain as well, you know. And it's like I, I had this idea that the, the winters were just terrible swine and would be going out stealing stuff from all over the world and shipping it back and causing all sorts of colonial horrors um and then this house would just be full of all this turt that they had and that the maxim de winter was like the kind of weakest end of this long line of people you know um and then that's where you've got this kind of like when they get when they have the mandalay ball it's like the fancy dress of the history of of great britain um which she gets caught inside of you know she can never deal with it because it's too too heavy the context of everything. We did a lot of entertaining when the late Mrs. De Winter was alive. 
You can talk to me about her. I have no secrets from you. All marriages have their secrets. Has Max ever talked to you about the accident? I don't know what you're talking about. How am I supposed to know anything if you don't tell me? She's still here. Can you feel her? I'm tossing and turning all night. Bad dream. She was the love of his life. I wonder what she's thinking about you. Taking her husband. Using her name. You. I said I want the truth. You didn't know her. You know what he did. He can't go on living in that big old house with a ghost. I don't believe in ghosts. The moment of uh, her arrival, the second Mrs. De Winter's arrival at the Mandalay Ball is a gasp-inducing one. Simply well, not simply, because it is one of the most... You know, when you see something terrible happen on screen, and I have to confess that watching uh, watching the movie just uh, last week and watching it and going... <gasps> when that moment comes, because it's, it's a great moment because of everything that happens and nothing that is said. Tell us about that moment, because that is one of the moments that you absolutely have to get right. The movie hinges on not fumbling those moments. Yeah, I mean... It- it's difficult to talk about without spoiling it for the people who haven't seen it, but it, yeah, the, it, it's a bit of in, a, a kind of heart wrenching bit of social embarrassment, and almost like it's not really ever really defined what it is either. You know, we kind of know what it is, but when you actually write it down and go, "Oh, that's not that bad," <laughs> but it certainly feels bad, you know. And it's more to do with the reaction of his sister, I think, more than anything. You know, it's like she you know Maxim goes in and out of dark moods and gets cross you know, quite a lot. But when when you when you look around and you see the other people involved are all cringing, you know, you're in you're in deep, deep trouble. But social yeah, social embarrassment is interesting because in a way it's the thing that I think ties this back to some of your own work because that is a register that you've worked in before. That social embarrassment, that awkwardness, that bridge that you know, gap between things being okay on the surface but absolutely terrible underneath is something that you've worked in before, isn't it? Yeah. I mean I see there's lots of like links back to the other movies. It's very I mean, there's there's something of Colin Bursted in it and there's something of um sightseers in it as well, I think. You know, this the the, the man in his secret and the in the the kind of innocent person who goes along with it and then, then grows and becomes stronger. It's that's a that you know, obviously I didn't when I when I read the script I didn't see that, but halfway through the movie I'm going Oh, brilliant! You know the 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 project which which was meant to be so absolutely different from everything else is the, the same thing again. You know, which is which is the is the curse of making multiple films. You know, but uh, yeah, yeah, I think that the, there is that, and the, and the kind of it, it's there is it's not a massive part of it, but there is this class thing about you know her her movement from being a, a kind of lady's maid up through into being in charge of the house and 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 her own kind of. Um, you know, not it, it, she. She kind of sabotages herself in lots of ways, even though everyone is quite snooty about it as well. And tell me about the music because uh, I was very excited when I found out who was composing. It was an obvious choice. So tell us about that. Well, yeah, Clint Mansell um, has composed the music for it, and it's our third collaboration together. And it was, you know, I talked to Clint. At, 
at length about it. And, and we, what we wanted to do is like have um, embrace underscore and embrace embrace music under the under the movie as much as possible. And in a way, I've kind of you know I think. The, the the movies I made before the the kind of the music is much higher in the mix usually or becomes like a kind of a major piece of the um and the the, the or you'll make holes in the film for the music to exist and the dialogue goes down and I was always a bit kind of nervous about underscore because it felt like it's almost like a laugh track isn't it or a, or an applause on something it kind of it just kind of rubs it along all the time but then I kind of got over myself really and just thinking well you know that it is part and part and parcel of 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 kind of um, classic cinema you know and, and 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 i wanted to get to grips with it so we we kind of committed quite early on to saying well this is this is a film with a lot of music in it you know this is i think it's a two-hour movie and it's uh it's 90 minutes worth of score you know and and that was the you know the big push to make that you know we wanted to fill that third um disc on the uh, on the on the release on the vinyl release you know but it was uh yeah and so it kind of it it's about you know the whole thing is about emotion you know and it's about that it, it was saying before is about that creating that rom- romantic feeling at the beginning but then the romantic feeling crumbling and the and the the kind of haunting aspect of the movie and the and the psychological aspect of the movie and then into the thriller so that it would because because there's so many kind of gear changes and um kind of genre changes it really needed music to help it get across those those um those kind of parts but um, you know, but that was one of the things that drew me to the film as well. And the script was that it was a Russian doll of a of a, of a script, as is as the book is, you know, and that and that the way that I thought it was really interesting that De Maurier would like kind of almost troll her audience with that kind of, you know, we want a romance thing. Oh, it's a, it's like a Mills and Boone thing with a with a um, a, a, a sexy widower meets a, a woman and they get they get married. But then, oh my God, no, it's it's a haunted house. Oh no, it's a, um, there's a there's a, a trial and a and, and a thriller element to it. So. I think that, I mean, Clint is one of my favourite composers. I think you have a very good relationship with him. I've always wanted to to sit in on a conversation you had with him about how how you discuss score. I mean, are you very musical yourself? Or what do you, how do you, how do you talk themes of a score with Clint? Um, I think, I think with all, all aspects of filmmaking, there's a certain amount of standing back and letting people do their job, you know, and I think certainly for performance and, um, uh, and, definitely for music and it's like the thing I want is the Clintness of it so I don't really want to kind of get too deep into you know um, super specifics and I know we'll get there and and it's just more nudging nudging along and encouraging rather than than telling because I think that that you know I'm, I can't I, I don't really have a musical bone in my body I can't play an instrument and and uh, I find that I find it very it becomes very much like enemy journalism of the of the late 80s my kind of articulation of what what actually what things sound like you know so, I, so that is a so, that is a brilliant description enemy journalism of the late 80s I know exactly what you mean well, it's a cathedral of sound, isn't it? Basically, <laughs> anyway. So it's it, it, trying to, and that, and that's the, you know, it's a nice challenge, but it's one of the challenges of filmmaking is communicating with musicians and how, you know, that what the difference, you know, I've got a set of rhythms I work within, and he's got his own, you know, music has rhythms, obviously, and editing has rhythms, and how do these two things meet, and how slow, how fast music can make. Um, uh, fast editing looks slow and and ruin the pace of things and those kind of conversations happen a lot um but more it's just kind of 
I think what happened on this one was that he, uh, Clint just did a massive suite of music quite early on before, as we were make before we made the film, you know, and we were we were just listening to that, and we kind of it kind of all came together over the period of the quite long post, um, but it was yeah, it was organic. It wasn't a uh, you know, there's not a, a it's not ever fretful or kind of like no, this isn't working. Oh my god, change it all. Those kinds of conversation. It's more that it just there's a thing, and then it slowly becomes what the score is over time, over conversations, and and he, you know, I re-edit and we'll send we'll be back and forth. It's just a long conversation. And what about with uh, with Jane Goldman? Was it was it a finished script at the point that you got it and you worked from that, or was was there to and fro and working on it between you and her? Um, the w- the script was in a really good state when we got it and then there was conversations between the actors and workshop stuff backwards and forwards and then bits of um uh rewrites happened then um after that but jane was off on um the um uh game of thrones so we kind of had slightly we didn't have too much conversation with her after it but then the actual structure and the the the, the weight of the script and how it worked was pretty much there from the from the from the get go. But then there was kind of you know little bits of changes here and there that happened um, across it, which needed bits of technical writing done on it. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just sixty bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince—they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and three hundred sixty-five day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/people today. One of my favourite uh, sort of passages of the film is very early on when their relationship, in inverted commas, is beginning and there's all the stuff about her not being allowed to come to the table and him inviting her to the table and almost this flirtiness between them, which which is something that I think is is much more romantically played than in other versions of the film that I've seen. Um, I think what you say about you have to you have to buy the romance, otherwise you won't buy everything else that comes afterwards is interesting, particularly because in previous versions, quite often you don't buy the romance because they're notable by the fact that romance is absent. Yeah, I mean, I I felt that, and I felt the other thing is the age gap. You know, I, we didn't play that either, and I felt like I felt like I'd seen enough films of old men and young women <laughs> to last a lifetime. You know, and that and it doesn't matter. You know, I mean, I think that the that is a part of the book, but her naivety can be she she is naive so there is that element in it but she's not so naive that it that it's you know that, that it makes a massive point out of it i think the the gap in their ages in terms of actors is only 3 years different from 
from the Hitchcock version. So it's not that massive, but it but it's enough for, to be a bit of change. But yeah, and I, I did feel that, and I felt that the the the, the Maxim being so unappealing and <laughs> kind of horrific was was something that was worth changing. But you know, I know it's heresy, but you know, I think I think that they felt like it felt like it was that pivot from kind of the the that there should be a contrast between those two kind of um, moments in her life, you know, so that she notices it's gone wrong, you know, otherwise, it, it, you know, there was something else. I'm currently, I'm just going to reach and grab this. I'm currently reading this, which you may well have read, which is the, the biography of Du Maurier. And my word, what a remarkable, I mean, it's 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 page-turningly racy stuff. And I, I love the fact that the Du Maurier behind all those stories that we know, her her own life and psyche seems to have been every bit as frenetically uh, charged as as her writing. Were you a De Maurier fan anyway? Yeah, and and I'd probably come to it through um, Don't Look Now. You know that that would have been uh, and 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 the birds more I think. But Don't Look Now is my and that that if there's a if there's a De Maurier adaptation that that kind of casts a shadow over this film, it's that more, yeah. more I think. Well, so t- talk to me about that because I love. Nick Rogue's Don't Look Now. I do think it's one of the, 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 the cases in which the film takes the story and... and go, Because, I mean, for example, in the De Maurier story, of course, famously, Christine does not drown. She dies of meningitis, I think it is, at the beginning. So all that stuff about water is stuff that Rogue and his screenwriters have brought to the table. So tell me about Don't Look Now and the influence of it, because I love that film. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a general influence for me and it was and it's about the folding of time and and also as films as traps you know and and how that you you you've you are kind of drawn into it and it and it's doing something there's some kind of weird alchemy magic that it does with with the form which other movies don't most most movies are are, are so um solidly um linear you know it's a linear experience whatever you you know 90% of the time and I think that Don't Look Now is a movie and it's like the, I found that and kind of The Shining is a similar thing with the Kubrick stuff is that you feel like you've you've been put into a kind of an A to B of time but you've also been scattered amongst all the frames of the movie as well as much as anything and that the that the meaning of it will then it doesn't matter about how you've got that information it's just like a soup of information that then is swirling in your head that then comes up with different meanings over time as much as anything and that you can come back to the film at different ages and it means completely different things um uh, and then just the, the the sheer baldiness of the editing you know of just going right we are everything's happening at the same time I, it's more like a memory i mean the thing that the madness of it is i mean cinema itself is it doesn't make much sense in terms of our own experiencing as we never edit we never you know um at and yet our mind compresses things all the time and that we often will be thinking about two or three streams of things at the same time and even if you can almost like if you concentrate for a minute you can tap into that you're having a memory I mean I feel feel like I'm remembering my childhood all the time you know perpetually and then but not even noticing I'm doing it and then I'm going oh oh," and they're all just feeling guilty about stuff or um uh, but then also dealing with the day and dealing with two days ago and, and dealing with the future at the same time. And that seems to be, that's the, that's the human reality. And it's not really, it's not really, <laughs> you don't really see it in many movies, you know, um, as weird as the form is, it's, it, you know, and I think that the rogue just pushed it that much further into that, that world of, 
it feels like experience rather than it just just someone filming a, a play or a, or putting pictures on a radio play or something. You've talked before about coming from that dual school of uh, of heritage. On the one hand, the Nick Rogues, and on the other hand, you know Alan Clark, and that how those two different i mean ken russell i think also on this side those two different schools of uh, of british filmmaking heritage kind of converge and uh, through uh, through a lot of your films you've sort of played with that interaction between those two different streams haven't you yeah i mean and i i feel like i guess that they're they're kind of the filmmakers that made me transported me you know and i i think I've, i've definitely been transported by the alan clark stuff and in, in an intense way that I haven't really had a, that feeling from other movies, you know, um, and it's and I and I and it took me a long time to work out what it was because initially when I saw the uh, Alan Clark stuff like Scum, I would have been at school or Contact, you know, and uh, and I couldn't and I probably was before a time where I even understood what editing was or what how how the mechanics of a movie would be and i just thought they were real you know it was just i wouldn't have had a uh, there wouldn't have been any difference between an alan clark play and panorama to me you know i could tell that soap operas weren't real but that stuff felt really real and when they mixed it up a lot in the 80s and then you get something like threads you know which is like just completely mind-blown because it feels like it's totally real and then it but and a documentary and not real, obviously, you know. So I think it, it's that, and then and then, like I say, when I saw the rogue stuff, it, it seemed to after watching thousands of hours of of television and 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 cinema, it just felt like a, much closer to my own experience. Um, and same with Scorsese, you know, and, that, and seeing that American seventies stuff, it felt it, you know, there, there's a rawness that that it just is um it's so intense that you you feel your heart in your mouth when you when you watch that's for the first time and even after multiple multiple viewings of it you can still be sucked stuck straight into it and of course because the executive produced uh, free fire which i still think must be it must be one of those great things that you think i made a film and martin scorsese executive produced it i do i wake <laughs> up every morning and think that <laughs> yeah i wake up every morning and go you know I worked on the script of a film made by William Friedkin and everyone else can fuck off because I kind of think like it's that, you know, it's one of those defining moment things. So Ben, where and when can people see Rebecca? On, well, there's a limited cinema release, I think the week before um, it comes out and then it's October the 21st onto, onto Netflix. So it will be around, but whether or not you can, you know, it, 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 I think it's going to be. I know they're showing up the road from me in Brighton, so it must be kind of on on reasonably general release around around the place. Um, but yeah, and then it's on it's on Netflix. And how has it been with Netflix? Yeah, it's good. I mean, I, you know, it's that thing of it's the biggest film I've done, and to have that opportunity to get to that massive audience is 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 really important, you know. And I think I felt that it's great making indie films and knocking about and kind of, you know, that, that building that audience over time. But, the, but really the whole half of this stuff is to get it out and to get it seen, you know, and I, and we got a taste for it after we did field in England and Colin Burstead, the way that they worked, you know, that they were on, on television and got that big television audience. And it makes, you know, for those smaller films, it gives them a cultural life they'd never have, you know. And it seemed to be like there's that other world. It's not just about making movies and going to festivals and, and kind of 
that side of it. It's like the big, the more people they get out to, the more chance they have of surviving over time. And like we found like with Field in England, like the half-life of it was much longer. It was being shown in cinema clubs and people were looking at it for, you know, five, six years afterwards, which I just don't think it would have happened in the same way if it had just had a, you know, a 30 screen release you know and then then and then slunk onto telly a couple of years later it would have it would have been much harder so that that side of it i think is really important and i think that the gap between like you know how i watch stuff is changing you know and i think that changed with the big tellies and the and the surround sound you know to to a degree that you still can't beat the kind of tra- eye tracking thing of cinema of that, that that massive mega mega big screen but there is it's not i don't think the stigma is there anymore of in terms of the, that experience being the first experience have you been back to the cinema since covid no and do you how do you feel about its potential return do you feel positive or are you worried i think that there is plenty to look at that is really depressing and like scary but at the same time it feels like there's a part of me that thinks the chaos of it is kind of kind of exciting you know that it can sweep away a lot of stuff and you can start again because the the filmmakers themselves will still exist and the audience will exist but it's all the other bits in between that might become more unstable you know what I mean? But that's definitely a silver lining, a desperate silver lining of this whole situation. But I think it's like the acceleration of 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 things of the maybe, you know, I think that maybe that the, the whole distribution system was set up on a model that, would, that exists, existed in the late 80s into the 90s. And the way that that all works needed maybe to be shaken up a bit, you know. But I don't know what, what how it will you know, how it'll all end up, it's really hard to say. I had something here which I wanted to see if I can... Let me see if I can lay hands on this. I probably, oh, yes, I can. Ben, this is specially for you, OK? I've been keeping... You may have it already, but if you don't, I'm going to send it to you. Oh, this is, oh hello. This is the Cine Fantastique edition <laughs> that focuses on Zardoz. Now, I want you to know that greater love hath no man than that he should hold on to this for you. Oh, that's so very... It's pristine as well. It's in absolutely yeah. pristine condition. Because I've got the sight and... I'm not, what's it called? Not um, Films and Filming. Film and filming one, yeah, which is which is pretty terrific. But I did a talk with Borman a, a while ago. I know back. you did. You tweeted me to say, "Are you still yeah. ragging on on Zardoz?" How was it? How did it go? I hope my name came up. <laughs> it was fantastic. You know, I mean, he, you know, he, it, like, I did one with Rogue as well, and you just don't need to say anything because they just you sit down and you say, "This is um, John Borman," and then they just boom, and they talk for an hour, and then you then you go again. So I had all my <laughs> questions all work, worked out. I was really nervous. Thing oh, I've got to work out these complicated, stupidly complicated A level film studies questions for this this poor guy, and it just it doesn't matter. You know, they just they know what to say. So that it was good, and I I did buy a, a Zardoz poster to get framed uh, to get signed. Yeah. Um, but I I didn't really look at how big it was, and it was some Italian thing. And when it turned up, it was as big as like a a picnic blanket, you know. And I was just like, I'm folding this thing. And he's like, looking at me like, really? And then he signed it really tiny. (laughs) And then I thought, well, Christ, it's going to bankrupt me just to frame this fucker, you know. So it's, uh, yeah, so that that was good. But yeah, it was beautiful. 
really amazing to to get the opportunity to even just to be in the same room as as, as these guys, you know, because it's you know they are. You know, I was, I was really lucky to meet meet Rogue as well, and he's like the, the founding fathers of a lot of the of, of British cinema. You know, and not and not celebrated enough, I don't think. No, I, I feel exactly the same way when we did the the Nick Rogue Memorial at the BFI. There was that feeling of privilege to have having met him and spent you know any time at all with him over the years because because when you look at the body of work, it's so extraordinary. And I, I understand exactly the same thing about Borman because it is an extraordinary body of work. And um, and it's, you know, it's like me meeting Friedkin for the first time and thinking, well, that's it, I've now... Because these people are creating work that will live with us forever. Well, I think they're still unpacking it. That's the thing. It's not... It, there's there's so much more to understand about that. I mean, when you look at performance, I'm still, still seeing new stuff in it all the time. And I think that that will just go on and on and on. And, and certainly, uh, you know, if we look at Point Blank as well, it's... It's miles ahead of anything that's being done at the moment. It will be. It will be miles ahead in twenty years' time. It's just, you know, they're they're visionary, but but almost it's like the punishment of being on the bleeding edge of stuff is that you just don't get thanked. I don't think <laughs> till you're, till 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 you know it, it's going to be being dug over in you know twenty thirty, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Ben, as always, an absolute pleasure to uh, to speak to you. Um, I wish you all the best with the with the release of the movie. What are you on now? Are you on to the next one? Yeah, I mean, there's a bit of um, it, it, COVID has is, is cast its its cruel shadow across all production at the moment. So everything that was certain to happen is all a bit more like, oh, let's wait and see. So it, it's kind of yeah, I'm working on stuff, and I've we've we've shot something as well. So we shot something. Um, three weeks ago. Wow, in Brighton? No, in um, Henley of all places. Actually, Henley on Thames. <laughs> yeah. So um, yeah, it was like a, a horror film. Um, so that's that was pretty good, and that was like the first. I think it's the first British production that wasn't a reshoot or a continue a continuation on. So it's a, it was a new new feature. What can you tell us about it? I know you don't like it's talking re- about things, but well, it's really scary. Okay. And it's written by uh, me, and it's called um, the Growing Green. And can you tell us what it's about, or you want to? Yeah, well, we'll see. Okay. Yeah, it's it's um, yeah, it's kind of a back to basics horror. Okay, who's in it? So, um, Reece Shearsmith. So that give you an idea. Okay. okay, I'm creeped out already. okay ben thanks ever so much uh hope to see you in the flesh soon when all this uh, is behind us stay well uh regards to amy take care cheers thanks mark well there we are i hope you enjoyed that interview with ben wheatley rebecca as i said at the beginning is now available on netflix thanks so much for listening to this Kermode on film podcast if you've enjoyed it remember to subscribe and tell your friends and why not go over to our patreon page where there's plenty of extras including some videos of some of the interviews here on Kermode on film thanks for listening see you next week stay safe keep watching the skies Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 